0: Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host Yingyi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabah Capital,
1: and you also have with you today Christopher Joy. Um, I'm also a portfolio manager at Cooler by Capital, and thanks so much, guys, for listening. Uh, We were overwhelmed by the number of downloads from the last podcast. I remember telling my co-host, Yingers, that um, I'd be very surprised if more than 500 people globally were interested in this uh, fairly technical and at times nerdy content, so we appreciate the support.
0: We have quite a lineup of content in today's episode. Today we'll be discussing the credit market boom, whether the RBA is about to engage in unconventional policy, whether the housing bust is about to end, why RMBS risks are rising, the increasing opposition to Labor's franking policy, whether SCOMO has a shot of winning the election, and how Magellan recently waded into the LIC debate. Chris, can you give our listeners an update of what you're seeing in credit markets at the moment?
1: Yes, is. we're seeing very strong returns. And this is really an unwinding of uh, the dynamics that we observed in 2018. So in 2018, everyone was selling credit. Folks were very negative the sector. And we saw extremely attractive credit spreads or risk premium that we capitalized on, uh, running down our cash weights in our portfolios. Uh, and really that's reversed in 2019. We've seen a massive credit rally, huge spread compression, Uh, and we are building up cash in our portfolios and taking profits on those assets we acquired in 2018. Just to talk to some specific um, numbers, uh, to put this in practical context, I should stress these are not retail products, they're not publicly available, Um, so I'm not um, trying to offer anything uh, particularly here, but um, for example, in one of our institutional hybrids mandates in the 12 months to uh, March 2019, that is up 8.8% franked um, versus the hybrids index at 6.9% franked. That's the Evans and Partners Index. Uh, in April, we've seen very strong performance again, so up another 80 to 90 basis points in April alone over the first 24 days of the month. Um, in our investment, investment grade portfolios, so not hybrids portfolios. Hybrids are only a very small percentage of the uh, circa three billion we run. The same story is sort of played out. So I think uh, in our composite bond mandate that is an in product not available uh, to retail investors, uh, that was up 9.14% in the 12 months to March. Um, versus the Comp Bond Index at 7.2%. Now that's only investment grade credit, Uh, so that that is to say bonds rated from triple B to triple A. And this uh, looks like continuing for the foreseeable future, this uh, unwinding of uh, the unusually attractive uh, credit risk premium that we saw in 2018, particularly if the RBA cuts the cash rate and that search for yield dynamic intensifiers, which we'll talk about in years. And um, also, of course, if, as is our central case, we see Trump and Xi uh, finally resolve their trade dispute. Um, we've been very sanguine about global growth. Uh, listeners will know that we have sought to fade the dip in growth in Q4, and we've certainly seen in Q1 pretty good partial data. US GDP growth reported at 3.2% annualized in Q1, beating every single forecast. Consensus was at 2%. And I think that's going to be positive uh, for technicals and credit more generally uh, if the momentum continues to intensify.
0: Chris, you wrote in the AFR this week that industry participants believe the central bank and banking regulator are considering a targeted alternative to a cut to the official cash rate, which would involve lowering the minimum seven and a quarter percent interest rate banks use when assessing a home loan borrower's repayment capacity by 50 basis points to 6.75%. This would improve the average home buyer's borrowing capacity by more than 5% and increase demand in the weak housing market, which was a key driver of the low March quarter inflation numbers. You know, newly built house price inflation declined by 0.2% there, while rental inflation was very soft at 0.1%. In December 2014, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, otherwise known as APRA, introduced the minimum 7% interest rate on all home loan serviceability tests as a part of its suite of macro prudential constraints to cool housing activity, which ultimately precipitated the correction that commenced in late 2017. According to mortgage brokers, more than 90% of banks apply a further 0.25% buffer to this minimum benchmark. With Australia's 10 year government bond yield only 1.8%, financial markets are not pricing in any material RBA rate hikes for a decade. You know, this yield proxies the average RBA cash rate over the next 10 years plus a term premium to compensate for interest rate volatility. So, Chris, why would the RBA be thinking about this?
1: Yeah, thanks uh, Yin Yi. I think there are several reasons why this more targeted approach to supporting the weakest component of the Australian economy uh, might be preferred to an outright RBA rate cut. The first is that the federal budget is now in surplus on all the key measures as we have consistently projected. It was reported actually a few days ago that the underlying cash balance is now in surplus uh, and that is in FY 2019 on a rolling 12 month basis. And there are good grounds, I believe, uh, for policymakers to assume that fiscal rather than monetary policy is likely a better placed to provide any extra stimulus, especially when the latter is approaching its conventional limits. Um, Then of course, inevitable pork barreling as part of the looming election, I think probably further reinforces the case for the RBA to wait and see what role fiscal policy can play in the outlook. A second point is uh, that commodity prices remain very high uh, and crucially they're above Treasury's quite conservative budget assumptions apropos commodity prices, and that means that the budget is likely to continue to deliver large surpluses uh, that are bigger than presently expected. A third point that I've already mentioned is that the economic data out of the US is surprised on the positive side um, with the Q1 uh, GDP growth printing at 3.2% annualized. Uh, And if we do get that trade accord, I think you'll see growth globally start to reinvigorate after a period where it's been stymied by tariffs uh, and the trade impasse between the world's two largest economies. The fourth, I think, observation is that if the RBA cuts its cash rate further below its current record 1.5% low, it could fundamentally undermine deposit takers' net interest margins, and this could in turn threaten financial stability at a time when banks' returns on equity are facing. It must be acknowledged a multiplicity of headwinds. Now here, not many folks really appreciate that the um, interest margins banks realize on their transaction accounts, um, which are particularly important for groups like CBA, they know Normally charge no interest and they're broadly constrained by a 0% lower bound. Put differently, it is unlikely that banks will start charging negative interest rates on these transaction accounts to preserve the spread between the cost of sourcing funding via these deposits and the interest rates bank, uh, banks earn on their loans. I think finally there's an argument that the RBA should preserve its monetary policy ammunition and that further cuts to borrowing rates that are already at historic lows uh, should be preserved for a time when the Australian economy faces a real crisis, uh, such as a, a long overdue recession. We obviously haven't had one for, you know, broadly speaking, 27 years.
0: On this topic, Chris, you were the first to argue in the AFR last week that if the RBA cuts interest rates, which financial markets are handicapping is certain by July, that Australia's housing bust will be over. The RBA's own internal research estimates that a one percentage point reduction in the cash rate would boost house prices by 28%, assuming it is fully passed on by banks and that borrowers consider the change permanent. Your column was the first to flag a radical reduction in bank funding costs and predict that banks would start unilaterally lowering home loan rates, doing some of the heavy lifting for the RBA. We faded the blowout in these funding costs in 2018 by buying exceptionally cheap assets linked to them. The bank bill swap weight, otherwise known as BBSW, which proxies the major bank's short-term borrowing costs and longer-term major bank credit spreads, have both compressed sharply since 2018. The previously dislocated secured cost of borrowing, as represented by the rate at which banks can repo assets with the RBA, which is another form of short-term borrowing, has also normalized. Finally, there's been a dramatic decline in long-term risk-free rates, as illustrated by the astonishing 1.14 percentage point drop in Australia's 10-year government bond yield to 1.79% since its February 2018 peak. It recently hit an all-time low. This has two crucial consequences. First, as we forecast, and some folks try to dismiss at the time, banks have started cutting interest rates out of cycle. NAB, CBA, Westpac, Bank of Queensland, Bendigo and Adelaide, Macquarie and ME have all slashed fixed-rate home loan costs by substantial margins. A second ramification is that the RBA should be able to bank on close to full pass-through of its own target cash rate changes, especially considering the contemporary political constraints. But should the RBA cut rates and what, if any, impact will this have on the election, Chris?
1: Yeah, interesting question, Yingers. We've certainly repeatedly argued that the 1,362 staff in Martin Place can be overcome by, quote-unquote, relevance deprivation syndrome Uh, if they don't try and regularly finesse economic outcomes, even though smoothing inherent business cycle volatility has, um, I believe, deleterious consequences, like blowing the housing bubble between 2012 and 2017. And if the highly paid RBA execs were half decent traders. I think they'd exercise the option to wait to preserve their scarce monetary policy ammo for a real crisis, as we mentioned earlier. Short-core target inflation at 1.4% over the last year has undershot the RBA's 2 to 3% target. Yet this target was frankly an entirely subjective range that Bernie Fraser pulled out of his ass following the deep recession in the early 1990s. And given the fact that the RBA can't forecast inflation with any real precision at all, and here I note that from the latest statement of monetary policy, the 90% confidence interval for its inflation forecast at the end of next year absurdly stretches between 0.9% core inflation and wait for it, 3.25% core inflation. So I would argue that the 1.4% print in 2019 to date over the last 12 months to the end of March quarter, that is, I would argue it's not meaningfully different um, from a preferred result around two to 3%. So you asked me about the election. Politically, I think ScoMo can argue that the RBA is cutting because of falling house prices, which were absolutely a key driver of the low inflation numbers. You mentioned earlier that we had actually new house deflation in the CPI numbers of negative 0.2% in the quarter. And we have also had an extremely soft uh, rent um, which collectively weigh quite heavily on CPI. And I think he can blame Labor's proposals to eliminate negative gearing and increase capital gains tax by 50% for scaring away housing investors. Economically, I'd argue that it makes no difference whether the RBA cuts in May, June or July. Uh, and the only reason the central bank would do so right in the middle of an election campaign is if it wanted to be the talk of the town. Uh, and I wouldn't put it past them. I think the case for doing so is particularly tenuous given the employment market has also yet to meet governor phil lowe's test of uh, demonstrable weakness that would help rationalize the soft recent economic growth data and there's also some evidence that the housing bust is slowing down we've seen corelogic's five capital city index it only declined 0.4 percent in april which was the slowest rate of house price declines in 12 months. On a peak to trough basis, the national market's off 10%, which is in line with our forecast of a 10 to 15% correction, Uh, and City and Melbourne prices have fallen 14 and 11% respectively, which of course are the largest losses in 40 years. Now, as we've argued, all of this will be very quickly quarterized. If the RBA cuts its cash rate, which certainly appears probable based on market pricing, even though Martin Place could justifiably ask the treasury to step into the breach via additional fiscal support and we've already talked about you know the root health in which we find the current budget surplus now lower risk-free rates are um, short-term very positive for both long duration bond portfolios that is investors in long date uh, long dated fixed rate bonds and for those allocating to zero duration floating rate bonds where credit spreads increasingly look fat relative to the skinly underlying cash rates While I believe it's impossible to consistently add value or generate alpha, quote unquote, through uh, trying to second guess the hyper-efficient interest rate markets by actively managing what is known as duration or interest rate risk, we do actually run, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, a long-duration mandate for a super fund. And in this mandate, we actually keep our interest rate exposure passively pegged to the composite bond index so we don't try and add value by second-guessing the RBA, Fed, uh, EC, be BOJ, and Bank of England, which, as I mentioned, is a very transparent, liquid, efficient market that many um, global balance sheets, bond managers, and macro guys are trying to exploit, we would argue, with uh, extremely limit, limited success, particularly because I think one of the problems in that market is you get a, a tremendous amount of inside information. Bruce Kovner, the founder of Caxton Associates, um, said in the 1980s that the best FX traders in the world were called the Russians because of the KGB's uh, electronic eavesdropping capabilities. But in that composite bond mandate, we focus exclusively on adding value through credit trading as opposed to interest rate trading. And as I mentioned, be open, and that's delivered 9.14% over the year to March versus the composite bond index return of 7.2%, which was a a pretty, pretty pleasing result.
0: While we're on the topic of interest rates, I mean, investors in the residential mortgage backed securities market will certainly be praying the RBA bails them out. In its latest financial stability review, the RBA revealed that a surprisingly high 2.75% of all loans backing RMBS bonds were now underwater or had negative equity, wherein the value of the loan is worth more than the property securing it. In Western Australia, almost 15% of all RMBS loans are underwater. This comes at a time when the RBA estimates that home loan default rates are almost back to the highs touched during the GFC. When we mark to market recent RMBS issues at Coulomba with house price changes through to end of March, we can identify one popular 2018 deal with an incredible 11.5% of all its loans underwater and another three recent RMBS issues where between 6 and 7% of all loans have negative equity. That's why Aussie RMBS has been the worst performing fixed income asset class this year, while global credit spreads have been compressing sharply. Another recent development has been the AFR's revelation that even if Labor wins the election, the Senate is set to block its proposal to ban cash refunds on franking credits. The AFR reported that Labour's plan to scrap cash rebates for excess franking credits looks increasingly likely to fail after the Centre Alliance appropriated the coalition slogan to use as its own mandate in the upcoming election. To quote, The party which is set to hold the balance of power in the Senate has adopted the slogan Stop Labour's Retiree Tax in a bid to have a third senator elected. Unquote. This is a big deal because droves of retail investors have been advised to dump their franked equities and hybrids on the potentially flawed assumption that Labor's policy will be legislated. Many of these punters have been encouraged to shift their money into much less liquid and riskier assets, including the recent spread of high yield or junk bond listed investment companies, LICs, that some advisors have been pushing to clip enormous conflicted sales commissions worth up to 2.75% of the value of the money that they extract from their clients. Chris, I know you've been very focused on this.
1: Indeed, I have uh, Ying Yi, and you know my understanding is that litigation funders said to be licking their lips at the prospect of launching class action lawsuits on behalf of mums and dads who have been personally advised by brokers and advisors to switch into inferior investments with ironically lower yields and or higher risks. And the history of LICs has been that when they perform badly, losses are severely amplified by the closed end nature of these products, which results in them trading at large discounts to their net tangible assets. This is not a risk investors face with open-ended funds protected by the future of financial advice or FOFA laws that prohibit these conflicted sales commissions. I spoke to a advisor called Adam Milizowsky who is a principal at Service Private Wealth and he said that he could not tell me the number of times he'd been recently contacted out of the blue by brokers and fund managers spruking LICs holding uh, quote unquote high yielding junk bonds. And he actually said it happened the day prior to me speaking to him. And Milizeski reckons that uh, retail investors are getting a safe, say, 5% return, but they don't understand the risks inherent in these products. And I certainly think that the reinvigorated search for yield dynamic that's come up a few times in this episode um, will intensify quite dramatically in the ASX listed hybrid market. If the Senate does in fact block Labor's franking policy, which is now a central crack case and appears increasingly highly probable. Last week we saw that Clive Palmer, who is projected to win at least one Senate seat, he's flatly ruled out supporting Labor's proposed changes to franking, um, negative gearing and CGT. And he told the uh, Financial Review that, quote, there are a lot of people who have worked hard all their lives and are now self-funded retirees. They won't be self funded retirees after Labor's policy. Uh, as you noted, the balance of power in the Senate should be held by the Nick Xenophon Aligned Centre Alliance, and I spoke to the representative of the Centre Alliance, a uh, Senator by the name of Rex Patrick, uh, and he told me that the Centre Alliance was absolutely committed to opposing Labor's franking policy and protecting retirees uh, from it. Crucially, he said that in any negotiations with Labor over Over whether the policy is passed, that the Centre Alliance is also emphatically opposed to any form whatsoever of retrospectivity, that is, uh, changing the rules and punitively hurting folks who have bought hybrids in their self-managed super funds and equities and have expected to claim cash refunds on the franking credits. So the only possibility is a grandfathered policy, which I think would also be very positive for the existing sector. The other point that Patrick made was that it's theoretically possible the Centre Alliance could agree to the policy if there was a cap, but he said that once you introduce a cap, it really eviscerates the revenue that Labor expects to raise from this policy and kind of renders it redundant. So I think that'll be uh, fascinating to see how uh, it'll play out. And I really feel for folks who have been given advice to sell their equities or hybrids on the presumption that Labor's franking policy will be passed, only to see that that does not look like it will be the case. And they probably have suffered losses uh, on their equities and other related securities. And it's clear that many of them are now holding assets that are less liquid, more complex, more risky, and that they don't fully understand.
0: Yeah, and it's funny how most political insiders and journalists are utterly convinced that Scott Morrison has zero chance of winning the election, which is echoed in current betting odds that place him as a rank underdog. It's also reflected in the bifurcated election coverage. Chris, you wrote about this recently, noting that whereas the right-leaning News Limited is doing everything possible to highlight Labor's gaffes, it is surprising how much of the ostensibly centrist mainstream media has gone missing in action when it comes to servicing voters with balanced analysis.
1: Yeah, we saw this on the weekend, you with the City Morning Herald's Peter Harcher writing this, I thought, preposterous piece, claiming that Bill Shorten was going to save capitalism. Really quite absurd. And the next day we saw the SMH lead the site with an article claiming that ScoMo had reached quote-unquote, peak bloke. So we've certainly seen, I think, News Corp's opponents morph into its antithesis, you know, running never-ending hatchet jobs on the coalition while largely overlooking Labor's shortcomings. When I asked a colleague why the supposedly always independent alternatives had suddenly become so biased, he responded that, uh, quote, since they believe ScoMo is a dead duck, they're trying to curry favour with Labor to buy access for the next three-year term. But aren't these folks meant to always live and die by their objectivity, is I guess the question I asked. And I asked of my colleague, and this is at the Financial Review. And his response was, mate, if you spend enough time with politicians, you start behaving like them, which is uh, a little sad. My own view is that the election will be much closer than political pundits project. We've been saying this for a long time. And I note that the news poll uh, released today has the two-party preferred vote at quite a tight 51-49, the tightest it's been in a long time. And I think that's only because Labor's tax everything that moves platform, slugging retirees, homeowners, investors, small business, big business, uh, and even the average income earner has given Scummo a chance of pulling off a bit of a minor miracle. Uh, Having said that, the coalition's proclivity for self-immolation means a labor victory remains in the statistical central case. i think thinking is one thing that's definitely true about this election is that there's a clear choice between two very different visions of Australia's economic future. The overall choice SCOMA offers voters is between a party that wants to empower and enable individuals and business and the shortened alternative that seeks to handicap success through higher taxes that force more equality of outcomes rather than equality of opportunity. You know, I would submit that in Labour's world, success is punished to unilaterally promote others, with the rules of the game constantly changing to the detriment of those battlers who have made essential economic decisions based on them. If you wanted to take control of your future and manage your own super rather than paying, the big end of town to do it for you, you're gonna be punished under labor. If you buy an investment property to supply rental accommodation to low income households, you're gonna be punished under labor. If in retirement you select a portfolio of assets to provide the income you need according to the existing laws, you're gonna be punished under labor. If you're a small entrepreneur building new businesses to employ people, you're gonna be punished under labor. And if you're a big business that employs even more Australians, I think you're going to be punished under Labor. And one of the problems I have with Labor relentlessly rewriting the rules that govern the economy, and interfering in the way it operates with expensive white elephants like the bloody NBN, is that I'm not convinced that these politicians actually know what they are doing. I'm not convinced they know better than those who represent the economy, and those of us who actually work in it every day rather than the polly sitting outside of the real world pretending. They have superior insights into how it should theoretically function. My concern is that Labor is no longer engaged in reform that will enhance the productive capacity of the economy. My fear is that their reforms are a Trojan horse for populist class warfare, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I think the evidence lends some support to this idea. Most of the budget deficits over the last 30 years have come under labor, whilst almost all of the surpluses have been bequeathed by their opponents who prefer, I think, to empower opportunity and celebrate the success it engenders rather than demonize it. What I like about ScoMo is his grind, He's a humility uh, and his everyday intelligence. And their insights I've had, you know, working quite closely with him on a few different projects in the past. And I think much of the financial success of this government can be attributed to his workmanlike commitment to making sensible decisions that are in the best interest of all Australians. And there are a few things in life more important than being a good decision maker. I don't know Bill Shorten. I've met Bowen once, he seems like a, a, a fine guy. I would like to understand who Bill Shorten is, and I don't think there's been much dispassionate reporting on understanding what he represents because you know superficially I'm a little confused I think he went to a private school Xavier College in Melbourne but he's the champion of the union so I'd like to reconcile those two disconnects.
0: Wow Chris that was really interesting. Well, now moving swiftly on to our final topic. You recently revealed in your AFR column that Magellan founder Hamish Douglas claims he would have no issue if the Australian Securities and Investments Commission extended the ban on fund managers paying conflicted sales commissions to advisers pushing unlisted funds to mums and dads to the resurgent listed investment company, otherwise known as LIC space, which successfully lobbied for an exemption from the future of financial advice laws, otherwise known as FOFA. To quote a lot of licks are free gifts to fund managers that look at them as a permanent source of management fees, Douglas told you. And he commented that Magellan would have no issue if the rules change and FOFA applied to LICs and listed investment trusts. Magellan itself oversees Australia's largest LIT, the $2.1 billion Magellan Global Trust. And as we've referenced in previous episodes and earlier... There's been a huge increase in fund managers using LICs and LITs to circumvent the FOFA rules and quickly raise vast volumes of capital from retail investors by paying advisors enormous conflicted sales commissions of up to 2.75%. Under the FOFA laws, these commissions are banned when sourcing money from mums and dads via normal unlisted management funds or exchange traded funds, otherwise known as ETFs. Since September 2017, there have been 17 new LICs and LITs listed on the ASX, raising almost $8 billion through paying sales commissions in excess of $160 million. Many of these products involve advising retail investors to shift out of safer asset classes like cash, bonds, and equities into higher risk products, which include leveraged hedge funds and illiquid high-yield or junk bond portfolios, which consumers would ordinarily find difficult to understand and or value properly. Because LICs and LITs are closed-ended investment vehicles, they also often price at a significant disconnect to their underlying net asset values. This contrasts with standard managed funds and etfs which are open-ended vehicles and are always priced at nav the worry is that when the cycle turns and these LICs start performing poorly retail investors will have to exit at huge discounts to the portfolios nav thereby severely exacerbating their losses chris do you have anything more to add on this
1: yeah, is I liked what the CEO of the Independent Wealth Advisor, Coda Capital, uh, Paul Heath, wrote in the AFR recently. And I think he hit the nail on the head when he questioned how advisors could possibly act in the best interest of their clients when they're being paid conflicted sales commissions to push actively funds. Uh, and he wrote in the AFR, quote, any payments of sales commissions to promote a product that contaminates clear-eyed and independent advice should be seen as just that. This sort of advice is completely compromised and utterly incompatible with the uh, intent of the future of financial advice laws. Coders, I think, important and meaningful because they advise on over $6 billion worth of assets, but they do not accept any fees from fund managers, including LICs or LITs. On the, I think what is increasingly normally acknowledged as a ubiquitous risk of mis-selling uh, around the surge of LICs and LITs being spruiked to uh, naive retail punters. Magellan's Hamish Douglas actually believes that ASIC should introduce an official cap on broker and advisor commissions when they are pushing LICs and LITs. So we know that joint lead managers on recent LIC and LIT transactions can earn as much as 2.75% of the value of the money they convince consumers to invest in these complex products. And Douglas thinks that this should be capped at no more than what a broker earns on a normal secondary market share purchase or sale, which is around 0.25% to 0.5% today. This would ensure that advisors are compensated for doing the work of highlighting the opportunity to their clients without creating the current extreme incentives to push products in a boiler room fashion over a short period of time. I guess you know the Paul Heath counter argument is that any conflicted commission is incompatible with independent and uncompromised advice. So really, yeah, I think that brings us to an end uh, for this episode. Yingers, thanks of. Thanks to those of you who have uh, persevered and listened. And again, we appreciate uh, your engagement and interest. Uh, Always keen to get feedback. So if you ever wanna email myself or Yingers, the easiest way is to try info at coolabarcapital.com. Alternatively, you can go to the website and please uh, listen to the disclaimer. Thank you.
0: This podcast does not provide financial advice, it is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.